Born in Your Side is a podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples, land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. While there's air that is breathed and water that nourishes and provides, ownership of this land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. My name is M. I have been attempting to do weekly podcasts over the last few weeks, but I think I might hold back to my status of a regular regular. I'm about to go on holidays uh, because of the Chrissy break, so that uh, will give me a chance to catch up on some sleep and possibly also give me a chance to get back onto a weekly schedule, but we'll just see how it goes. So yeah, I'm giving myself leeway. this episode i am doing my very special christmas episode i am looking to plonk this right at the same time as carols by candlelight so if you're looking for an alternative watching that on the tv have a listen to my podcast where i'm doing an interview here with father rod bauer of the gosford anglican church Rod, uh, how's it going and did i get your title and parish name correct Yes, you did. In, you did indeed. Uh, thank you very much. And it's lovely to be with you. Awesome. Yes, we're off to a great start then. Now, Rod, uh, we needed to um, think on our feet here because the original plan was for me to travel up north. Um, so I'm based out Campbelltown Way and I was looking forward to a trip up the M1 to, to visit you and maybe catch a couple of minutes at Umina Beach. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, that didn't eventuate. Uh, fortunately, when I woke up today, I thought to look at the news and there seems to have been a very sharp escalation regarding this COVID cluster thingo. As far as I understand it, uh, the, the ground zero is, is basically smack dab in the middle of my point A to your point B. So what have you been hearing on your end, right? Is it, uh, has there been some concerns be alert but not alarmed? I know that you had a parish service earlier on today. Yeah, we still function today, although we didn't. We chose not to sing. I mean, it was only last week that we were allowed to uh, have congregational singing once again, but we chose not to do that today. And I note um, after the service today, the Premier had asked that there be no uh, congregational singing in, in, in worship services. And, of course, that's uh, all the carol services, community carol services uh, were planned for this week. Well... Uh, most of them will now be shut down or become concerts where uh, people can just listen. But uh, we'll we'll wait and see what the, the next couple of days brings. It's an interesting dynamic, I guess, because uh, clearly our political masters are um, very keen to keep the tills rolling over, uh, running up towards Christmas because it stimulates the economy and that's uh, uh, that looks good for them. Um, but I guess I, I'm starting to question what at what social cost will that uh, uh, that economic stimulus come at? And uh, I think we 
we learned a very good lesson from the way Victoria handled their outbreak. Uh, if you shut down hard and quick, um, the recovery is much quicker as well. So um, I, I'd like to see a, a hard, quick shutdown today, but mm. I think the, uh, the economic, or, or at least the illusion of economic imperative uh, will make the politicians very nervous. Mm. I remember several months ago when there was the, and I don't know if you can remember this or not, Rod, but there was that cluster uh, that happened at so the Crossroads Hotel, um, southwestern Sydney, which is a stone's throw from where yeah. I both work and live. And I was about to, well, I was in the process of traveling up north for um, a bit of a study break uh, to cross the border, as it were. And um, everything shut down very quickly. It was almost like um, a, a race against time to get over the border because I, I did manage to get over there, but it was a matter of just checking into the hotel and then suddenly you're watching the, the news and it's, they're telling you that the border is now closed. Um, so then my holiday was off to a start there where I had to try and work out, well, am I now a, a fugitive? <laughs> am I allowed to go home? Uh, so that was part of the, the start off with, um, with my holiday then. But looking back on that, there was definitely um, a very quick shutdown um, and Queensland definitely bought into that as well where they purposefully saying, anyone living at Campbelltown, don't come up here. Yes, and so, that's what they're saying too about the Central Coast, where we are. It's included in the, in the, in that directive again from Queensland. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll be staying put. And uh, like a lot of people, I think now, especially those who are going to be travelling to Queensland or Victoria or even to Western Australia, so everyone will be staying put for Christmas. Yeah, how forthright do you think the New South Wales Premier will be with um, telling people living in Pittwater Council that um, they they can go here, neither here nor there? Uh, well, at the moment, she has told people to stay at home on uh, on Northern Beaches, and uh, and that's a good start. Uh, I uh, I don't think it's hard enough or fast enough, and um, of course, you know, she's juggling, you know, uh, some. Some, some pretty influential um, money in terms of some of the big retailers. And, and so that's, that's, the pressure's going to be on her to keep things open. Uh, I'd like to be putting some pressure on her to shut it down. Yeah. So uh, our decision to, um, to do a, a last-minute uh, online interview arrangement, I think, was probably more out of our own personal choice rather than any legislation or guidelines compelling us to do so. Um, yes, but it's also, I think, about in the reason when you, you rang me earlier in the day, said, you know, making that suggestion. I still, I think it's about modelling as well. Um, and so I'm very conscious as a public figure um, on how I, I model uh, things in the community. And so by saying, uh, no, we won't meet in person, we'll do it online. Um, uh, that's, that's saying to the wider community that that's the responsible thing to do. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I have to say, Rod, that um, I think out of all the the interviews that I've had so far, you're probably the highest profile interviewee that I've had so far. The beginning of beginning of great things. <laughs> yeah, oh, I hope so. Yeah, it, for me, it, for me, it's a matter of thinking. Well, where does this sit on the swearometer in this episode? <laughs> I find you can swear as much as you like, but they're only words. So don't worry me. Excellent. <laughs> I, I started my working life on the killing floor of Newcastle Abattoirs. Oh, so there, 
There is nothing you can say that I haven't heard. <laughs> okay. Great. Okay. At the abattoir. Um, no, yeah. no any coal miners about then while you were growing up? Uh, well, I, my first appointment was to Cessna, um, right in the middle of the coal, coal country. So I uh, uh, knew a lot of coal miners back in those days. Okay. All right. So, yeah, you, you had a, a work – would you say it would be a working upbringing that you, you had then or is that a fair comment? Yeah, well, I grew up on, on my family's grazing property up in the Hunter Valley. Okay. Um, and that's where I grew up. And um, my family um, were in the, in the meat business, uh, both um, growing it and retailing it and exporting it. And um, um, my family felt that uh, I needed to learn the business the hard way and, and from the ground up and there were no... Um, uh, you know, no uh, uh, easy ride. So that's where I had to start, right? <laughs> right, right at the bottom in the hardest place. Okay. Uh, and the, uh, the, the killing floor of an abattoir is a, is a pretty rough place. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Still got that one in your resume, right? Or? Uh, you know, I've, that's dropped <laughs> off the resume in <laughs> the last 20 years or so. But, uh, um, it, uh, you know, you it's... When you, it's a fascinating dynamic because you, you are actually up, you know, up to your waist in death, uh, and and violence and and brutality and um, and and the people who work in that space can be a bit like that. So it's um, it's pretty raw humanity. Sure. Uh, to be in that space, um, you know, you're literally covered in blood and guts. So, just thinking about that one, Rod, um, was that one of those moments in your life where it was a potential test of faith, or because it was um, potentially a highly traumatic work environment, you had to do a bit of compartmentalization of your day to day work, or a little of both? How did it go down? Yeah, I mean, I guess I didn't even ask the faith questions in those days because, I mean, I I wasn't even really thinking in those terms. Although I'd grown up, you know, in a country in a in a country village, so everyone went to church and all that. That um, I hadn't really thought those issues through. But um, it's certainly as I as I look back now, there there was trauma. I think you're in the midst of trauma. I think that actually does do something to your soul, to your psyche, um, you know, in, in that context. And, um, you know, there were, you know, initiation ceremonies that um, um, now would have resulted in charges of assault and sexual abuse. Oh, so you were hazed, right? Oh, something dreadful, yeah. Okay. Um, people would go to jail now. Uh, and rightly so. Yeah. For what they used to do to young young men in that space. So um, yeah, yeah. So um, another time, another so place. Nothing you can say is going to shock me. me. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. It's it's Christmas time, right? I, I might uh, be, I might turn down the shock on better today. <laughs> <laughs> I like this uh, progression of journey of life type thing that we're currently doing. Um, so. Yeah, what what happened after you you moved and set the abattoir? Did it um did it put you upon the the religious path, or did you knock around with a couple of other jobs beforehand? How did it how did it all go oh, down? No, so I progressed through the meat industry, and um, and I was uh, 
um, you know, working in, in the retail part of that, when I, um, when I started to think about um, uh, some kind of calling in the, in the religious world. And so I'd, I'd started going back to church on a Sunday um, in my uh, very early 20s. And, um, and that was starting to, uh, you know, people were starting to say to me that, you know, you, or you ought to be a priest. And I'd laugh at them and say, don't be ridiculous because that's, you know, no money in that. <laughs> so this is how it's all come about then, Father Rod, peer pressure. Is that how it's happened? Yeah, peer, peer pressure. Well, actually, I, 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 to shut them up, I, I, I said, look, I'll go to the bishop and he'll throw me out of his office and that'll be the end of it. <laughs> And, and he didn't, and here I am um, actually tomorrow, the 21st of December, uh, is St Thomas's Day, and it'll be the 28th anniversary of my ordination of the priesthood. Oh, wow. Congratulations. So nearly, nearly 30 years. Okay. Wow. So uh, got any plans then for the big 3-0? No, I haven't thought about that yet, but I oh, guess we'll have probably have a special service or um, interesting that... That will also be the anniversary of the first ordination of women. Oh, okay. Uh, to the priesthood in in the diocese of Newcastle, uh, because uh, I was among that first group of uh, the three men and eleven women, mm. and it was the first group of women to be ordained to the priesthood as well. So it was quite a historic occasion, really. So how did that go down? Like um, introducing women into the clergy was that a position that? that happened diocese by diocese or was there a big blanket announcement that all dioceses and all parishes and all sacred grounds will be also marked through um, the presence of women? How did it work? It, it happened um, because in uh, the Anglican church is a little different to the Roman Catholic church in that we, we don't have that sort of centralized uh, authority figure of a Pope. Mm. Um and uh, so each diocese has, and there are 23 dioceses in Australia, um, uh, each, each is autonomous you know, to a point. We do have a, a, a governing body called General Synod, uh, which is, oversees the Australian church. Mm. So the ordination of women uh, was a very controversial thing, of course. And uh, so it did happen diocese by diocese. And there are still some dioceses. In Australia, um, who do not ordain women to the priesthood. Okay, so it's still um, still some ground to cover. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, still uh, still it's still a relatively controversial issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, forgive any particular ignorance on this kind of stuff, right? Uh, I didn't really find myself going along the religious path. Uh, I think I'm atheist. Um, I definitely know I'm anarchist. Sure. <laughs> An anarchist. <laughs> Um, but I feel like there's enough common ground between us two. Uh, you definitely caught my attention, Rob. Um, but come the 30th anniversary, what do you think then? It'll be a little bit of this and a little bit of that in terms of marking your own anniversary as well as the milestone that happened at your time of ordination? Yes. Yeah, it remains to be seen whether we have a... Because uh, uh, a lot of those uh, women were, were older, much older because they had uh, waited a very long time for ordination. So, you know, some of them then were in their 40s and 50s mm. um, and so some now all of them by one are retired and, and some have died so uh, it'll be uh, yeah it'll be a we'll, we'll get together 
uh, and have a, a a bit of a party of some description. Uh, yeah. So, um, mm. but it, it's been a. I, I guess it's been a, an interesting and those thirty years of my priesthood have been a, a interesting and tumultuous time, really, not only within society but within the church. And of course, now we're grappling with the human sexuality issue. Sure. And so we have, uh, you know, a number of uh, progressive clergy and dioceses who want to um, be able to marry same-sex couples. Uh, and, of course, uh, a lot of very conservative clergy and dioceses who um, are opposing that. And so, again, uh, we tend to reflect something of what's going on in the uh, in the rest of society and, and asking those same questions and struggling with those same issues. and But for us, sometimes it can be um, uh, really difficult to navigate our way through it. Yeah. It's interesting what you say there, Rod, with I think your work there with with trying to have the, the church and your parish to try to create as much of a mirror to greater society as possible. That is that all about trying to promote a sense of social inclusion, the way that you deliver your service and your faith? Well, there's, there's a balance, I think. Uh, yes, so in inclusivity uh, is a really important thing for, for some churches, and, and certainly mine is one of those churches where being inclusive. Um, but that's, that come, always comes with tensions, and I, and I, I think... The church ought to be countercultural in some ways, and um, and I think the way in which we are seeking to be countercultural at the moment is that we 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 live in a very polarized culture. Everybody just goes to their own corners and 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 don't talk to people who they disagree with, and um, uh, you know the, the social you know live in our own social media bubble, and um, so. You know, a, a counter-cultural response to that is to say, okay, we here in the church and in the Diocese of Newcastle, where I'm, I'm a priest, um, um, our, our way of being counter-cultural is to say that actually the church for us is a very is a big table and, and everyone's welcome at that table. Um, but to be able to sit at that table, you've often got to sit next to somebody that you may uh, disagree with. Uh, you've often got to sit next to somebody that you, you may not even like very much. Um, and, uh, but I think that's a great gift that we've got to offer society because, you know, society just, you know, is so polarised at the moment mm. around all sorts of issues and politics and, um, and to say to the world that, you know, that's actually not much good for us human beings to be like that. Mm. Uh, we are much better when we, and we evolve actually much better uh, when we are engaging with people that we we neither um, agree with or understand sometimes or even like. That That's um, when we human beings evolve in the most healthy, sustainable way. So that's, a, I guess, a countercultural thing that we're, we're saying to the world that we uh, we want to offer you, um, but there are some churches and some dioceses, of course, who buy into you know that polarisation stuff and say you know we're we're right and you're wrong and we're not going to talk to you. <laughs> but that's not very healthy. 
that's not at all, nor is it very helpful to the wider community. Yeah, that particular division that you just mentioned, right, it, um, it's played out in all places on the internet as uh, Google reviews. Now, yes. as, as part of my robust research effort leading up into this interview, uh, of course, yes. one of the best port of calls when you're doing the research is Google review. And also as a side note, I, I suggest, right, if you've got some time, obviously, you might want to have a look at the reviews for Engadine McDonald's. They're quite cool. Yes. <laughs> if you haven't come across them already. Um, I'll be exploring that in a future episode as well, by the way. Um, so, Rod, listeners, stay tuned. Most likely just before the federal election, but, um, you know, if you can wait that long, although it might be quicker than we expect. Anyway, Google reviews on Gosford Anglican Church. I, I have a look and... You've got, I think, three point something stars out of five, right? Now, you get full marks from people because they definitely uh, key into what you've just said there about inclusivity, counterculture, trying to cross as much of the the social issues and and social uh, identities and and I would also argue class identities as much as possible. Where you got marked down, Rod, wasn't necessarily because um, your, your, your parish is a bit steep to get up when walking up the hill or your, your service might be a bit later than usual, but no, nah, it, it's actually an attempt to call you out for everything that, that you've identified there as a criticism where uh, it, the church is there to kind of set the rules, the social rules, and it's for everyone to really try as hard as they can to conform to those. Just through that one... Uh, innocuous uh, internet fixture uh, mm. we're seeing a, a bit of uh, a political divide there um, that looks like your your parish is playing out um, you had a, yes. have you had a look at those reviews there right or? yes 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 I, the, um, and you know you, you get the criticism from especially people who want to be exclusive uh, who want to be in control um, or think that you know, somehow or other that it's still 1850 and, and the church is actually in control because it's, it's uh, yeah, those days are, are long gone. Uh, and thank goodness, uh, you know, thank goodness they are long gone because um, that uh, when, the, when the church is being used um, for social control, which is what governments did for about 1,500 years, uh, is put the church in the position where it, it, it's a, a tool of the government uh, for social control. Uh, and that corrupts the church and corrupts the government, to be honest, as well. Um, and so I think, um, you know, while we should have a very loud voice on social issues, um, I think people, you know, ought to be uh, able to, um, you know, live the diversity of human existence that, that people people live. Uh, this was one of my arguments during the marriage equality debate, that even if you held the view that marriage was exclusively between a man and a woman, and you held that view because you were, a, you know, that's the way you understood your faith, and that's fine, I have no problem with that, um, you don't have the right to impose that uh, on somebody else. So you should have the right to, to live that life. And if you, you know, and we were saying at the time, if you don't like gay marriage, don't get gay married. And that's, that's, that's fine. I've got no problem with that. But don't try and impose it on somebody else. So um, um, I, I believe that 
we all human beings should be able to live in the same um, civic universe. And the problem with the, the marriage laws at the time was uh, that about you know 10 or 15 percent of the population did not live in the same civic universe as everyone else. Um, and that can never be right. That can never be a good thing. Mm. So you're saying that there, there might possibly be a bit of a disconnect, a bit of a social disconnect with some elements of the church institution still at this time. Would, would that be a fair question to ask? Or? Oh, huge, huge, a huge social disconnect, especially on the human sexuality issue. I think that's the, that's the big hot button issue at the moment. Um, and, you know, those churches that um, hold a very conservative view around human sexuality are only one generation away from extinction because, you know, um, Gen Zers um, uh, are just going to look at that and shake their head and say, that doesn't make any sense to me and I don't want anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you mentioned also the term evolution there, right? Uh, I think that's even with the language, it, it kind of puts you at odds with, uh, with certain camps of the church as well, where it's that idea that you do everything right, if you say everything right, then therefore you're, you're all sorted and things will run its course as it should but I think it's sounding yeah. like you're taking a bit there are, my, those, there are loud minority that some of the you know the the, the seven day creationists and all those sorts of they are they are quite a, a minority but they're a loud minority I mean, I always remind them that the um, uh, the Big Bang theory uh, which I guess is the the, the, the central theory um, around the evolutionary process was actually first postulated by none other than Father George Lemaitre, who was a, a Jesuit, a Catholic priest, was the first person to actually postulate the, the theory of, uh, uh, of the Big Bang. And, um, and so thinking Christians, educated thinking Christians, have no problem with that idea or the idea of evolution. Uh, it just makes perfect sense to us. Sure. And I think that might be where it's handy to have platforms such as yours, Rod, to help illuminate that sort of stuff that might be there, but it just it, it doesn't really have as much oxygen as it could have. I mean, yeah. a, an immediate parallel that I can think of right now is the where I sit within the union movement, where, and we're particularly seeing this over this past year, where because of the extra pressures that have been brought on by the pandemic, uh, a union movement that I think has been um, uh, really locking itself into the electoral cycle what it has ended up being put on the periphery has been that idea of workplace democracy, looking at diversity of labour, looking at the different types of ways that people work, also how exploitation presents itself in its myriad forms. But I think if there is a, a common way to respond to all of that, and uh, I, I'm not sure that it, it does get the oxygen that it should be getting, is that idea of well, what's the ideal workplace democratic structure as a suitable means of response? I mean, of course, it's not going to be put it into a bottle and then pour it everywhere and it's going to fix everything. But I think the essence of it is is it's got to be a space where um, you, an average worker can provide their own contribution and input to how's the best way of, of doing one's work and what's one's way best way of being healthy and having a good life as it is in the balance of things. So, so yeah, I'm to trying to create a bit of an, a parallel there, Rod, and I'm, I'm wondering if you're going to buy into that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, you know, what the conversation that you're having within the union movement is a is a conversation about justice. Uh, it, it's it's about what is just, and and so often um, organisations like churches and unions and and governments and you know a, any institution uh, can fall into the trap of of focusing on order you know what what creates order uh, you know what you know what are the structures and of course the minute you do that and we and, and all organizations do that uh, then you'll get a, a, you'll get a domination system or a power structure uh, where you know the, the more powerful influential will float to the top and and start to order that organization and, and their world for their own advantage and the minute that that happens, you'll, you'll get an unjust social structure. Uh, Dr. King, of course, who was a great hero of mine, um, you know, wrote from Birmingham prison, uh, wrote to the religious leaders and, and basically said, you know, how disappointed he was, uh, especially in the, in, the, in the white liberals, you know, the, the moderates who, who you would expect were supportive of the civil rights movement. Uh, but he basically said, I'm, I'm so disappointed because at the end of the day, you are, you are choosing order without justice. You know, you're, you're making decisions that, that maintain the power structures of order, and which, which is the denial of justice. And so I think any organisation that at least pretends to, you know, have some interest in creating a just society needs to be always on the lookout for those structures and those dynamics that lead to, you know, the, the triumph of order over justice. Now, we don't want chaos. Nobody wants chaos. Um, um, but um, you know, without, without justice, uh, order without justice is tyranny, uh, and we'll get that in, in, in all organisations. And, of course, the church is a classic example of that because it is such um, a... Um, a hierarchical structure, um, and of course, up until you know, probably the you know, thirty years ago, hierarchical structures worked quite well, and everybody sort of bowed and scraped and doffed their hats to bishops and archdeacons and all those kind of people. Oh, and it's been a unique year in the sense, Rod, that I'm I'm sensing something of a return to that uh, that type of political arrangement. Oh uh, well, I mean, I guess in in times of social stress. And uncertainty, uh, you will get people relying a little more on authority figures, and um, and I and I guess that's you know I hear am I you know telling people you you know you have to listen to what the premier is saying, you have to you, know, you have to listen to what the health experts are saying, and 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 I, I guess that makes some sense for a time in the midst of crisis and chaos. Uh, we, you know, we, we do need to err on the side of some kind of order. Mm. Uh, but once that crisis passes, um, you, we really, because what will happen is in, in a time of crisis, clever, you know, manipulative leaders uh, will grab at power. And sometimes we have to give it to them. For China, you know, ironically, it has got through the pandemic extraordinarily well. Uh, because of their um, 
you know, they're a dictatorship basically and centralised power and everyone does as they're told and, you know, um, whereas America, on the other hand, with their libertarian philosophy, um, you know, there's 4,000 4, people a day uh, dying mm. at the moment. Mm. Um, and so sometimes it's horses for courses and sometimes political ideologies need to give away um, uh, to some more practical applications. But once the crisis has passed, uh, it, it requires, you know, strong leaders who understand that order without justice is tyranny uh, to rise up and say, okay, now that's passed, that worked for us, that's not gonna, it's not going to lead us into the future, this is what we need to do. And that, you know, I think the union movement is, is one movement that uh, can serve us very well uh, with a loud voice uh, at, at times of coming out of crisis when we're recalibrating ourselves. And that's where the union movement should come into its own. Mm. Mm. Maybe we should have a sequel episode where we can discuss that very topic, Rod. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think um, perhaps it hasn't all played out as yet as union movements happen uh, in a very popular way these days. Uh, they, they tend to act on electoral cycles. So I think there's still a lot of embers in the fire there in terms of what could happen between now and the next federal election, whether unions do rise up as a place of a great social just voice, possibly as a place to suggest better social alternatives yeah. towards how we live and how we work, whether it gets motivated by electoral need or it doesn't, or it comes through integral workplace or labour-based organisation. For me, it, it still remains to be seen, and I suppose that's where my political optimism remains. But it's, it's great to find different folks and different spaces and different places to, to have those conversations, such as, such as this podcast, Rod. So it's been, it's been nice that way. Mm. So maybe uh, one big thing that, um, that particularly attracted my attention to you, Rod, is um, these signs that you whack outside your parish. You've become quite the internet meme. Uh, lefty people like it. It's very easy to read. I think your signs are also definitely well positioned within this Twitter culture where you definitely keep your signs to, I think, 150 characters or less. <laughs> yes, we only have 52, actually. <laughs> okay, so it's like... It's only, it's only a third of Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like hyper Twitter. All right. Mm. Um so with, with your signs there, right, tell us a story about how you came across that. I mean, having the signs, of course, is um, standard practice within your parish, but how did it come about with putting the messages up there, how your messages kind of got propagated amongst the internet as well as other forums, and what do you think of that? And do you feel empowered by doing that sort of stuff, or do you feel that um, there is... Of course, the threats that, that might come from some of the sections that we've just mentioned earlier in the podcast. Uh, you know, it's a typical question I ask in these podcasts where it provides a super questions, really, and, and a flurry in response. But, yeah, what is your response there, Rod? And um, I'm happy to break it down further if you like. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, yeah, the church sign, 52 characters, I mean, it's, it's, it's a meme and, and, and therefore it works. Um, very well in, you know, in, in social media communications because uh, you, you only have a, 
you know, a matter of seconds to communicate your, your message and, the you know, people have moved on. So it's a very effective form of uh, social media communication. But even having said that, there's... Um, uh, you do need... There was a, um, a, a rabbi who... Um, uh, wrote some books about what we call the 8th century prophets, these are 800 years um, before Christ. And, uh, and those prophets were basically social commentators who were railing against the social injustices of their day. And he said there are three aspects to those, those prophets. And uh, uh, one was that they were, um, they were prepared uh, to be very clear about what they said uh, they were prepared to, to live on the outskirts of their society so they didn't really have to be at the, the centre of society's power structures. And then thirdly, they were prepared to be occasionally prepared to be outrageous. And I, and I think in some sense that's the model that we've engaged uh, is that you, you, you can't talk to people until you've got their attention. And so, you know, occasionally willing to be outrageous you know, and put up signs like, you know, dear, dear Christians, some people are gay, get over it, love God, or, you know, Jesus had two dads and he turned out okay, and those kind of, uh, that gets, it just get, it gets people's attention. Well, um, those are some of my favourites, Rod. Yeah, and then you, then you can have, once you've got people's attention, you can have a conversation. And, um, but in order to do that, um, you, you do have to be prepared to live on the the outskirts of your organisation, um, and so the you know the the chance of me ever um, being at the centre of an organisation of the church is is something that I gave up on a long time ago because I think for me, and I'm not saying that you know people who do have those kind of ministries. Uh, they they serve a very important purpose and, and function in the organisation, but for me, being on the outskirts um, and on the edges um, is where I feel called to be. And and so all of the messaging we use on social media, the communication that we have um, through it's you know it's a, this isn't new for the church. I mean, um, you know, we've been using cutting-edge communications for 2,000 years. Um, you know, we were the, you know, you look at the stained glass, the medieval stained glass windows. Um, they were the memes of the day. Mm. You know, that, that, that's simply, that's a meme. It tells a story, basically, uh, often to people who couldn't read. And, um, and you know, we, we were the first to use the printing press. Uh, you know, in the 15th century, it was the it was the Bibles that were being printed, in the, uh, um, um, and uh, you know, the Gutenberg printing press was was really built to print the Bible. <laughs> so, um, so these cutting edge communications, um, you know, we're pretty good at that. We're, we're pretty good at doing that. I um, was that also around a time, Rob, where there was a jump from Latin to English in printing yeah, out contents uh, of the Bible? A, a little bit, be, um, yeah, certainly around that time. A little bit, uh, the, the printing press was certainly popular still when, um, you know, Latin was being used mm. on the continent, um, but it's around that time. So the use of English or the use of um, popular language, um, whether it be German or, um, you know, 
Elizabethan English or, or you know, wherever you were at the well, time. Well, the common um, tongue of the place, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the common tongue of the place. Well, that's when the printing press makes some sense because it's actually engaging people in a language they understand. Mm. And um, uh, so, yeah, we, we've been we've been pretty uh, pretty good at that. I, I was much sitting on a um, a panel with some marketing experts, and uh, I, I said, you know, you know, you guys are really amateurs. You know, we've we've been doing this for a very long time, and uh, you know, you try marketing crucifixion. It's not easy. It's it's, it's actually. <laughs> It's a pretty hard thing to sell, <laughs> and uh, so it's, well, it's, I have to, I have to argue there, but I think the, um, I think the brand has been invented and reinvented a lot over time to, um, to uh, ensure that, um, <laughs> ensure that it still remains fresh in some ways. Although it has to be. It, the it political has, loading has. of how it's often been presented might be a different argument, though. Yeah, true, um, but it, you know the the brand. Um, of Christianity, it has to be in, in constant evolution. I mean, the the core core substance doesn't change, mm. or it shouldn't change. I mean, it does sometimes, but it shouldn't change. But the way it's packaged has to change. Mm. Um, um, but it's it's when the package becomes the core substance that you then get into trouble. I mean, you know, um, for instance, if you you look at you know, some of the Pentecostal churches, in, especially on the in the Hills District of of, uh, of Sydney, um, you know, they package something that would really resonate with the aspirational um, population of, um, and they did it extraordinarily well uh, and became very successful. But the trouble is sometimes the the packaging actually becomes the, the substance, and that's when you find yourself in trouble. Yeah. And I, I think at that point, it's, that's where there is that unavoidable uh, convergence of religion and politics. Like you, you've got to, if it is a package, then um, how is it a relevant package? How is it one that um, that represents people um, well, and also politics, religion? Yeah, po- politics is simply the way we humans organise ourselves. That's what politics is. Mm. Um, and um, And certainly... The founder of the firm uh, was very interested in how people, and, and, and in fact, his message or his good news um, was basically that there is a, there's a better way to organise ourselves. There is a better way of being society. Uh, there's a more just and more equitable way of being society. Mm. So right from the beginning, and he, he got himself crucified under the charge of sedition, it was a it was a, a political charge. Uh, that's that's what got him killed. Was a sedition. So, in, at the absolute core of the DNA of Christianity, mm. uh, is seeking to evolve a a more just, more equitable society. That's our core business. And um, so, you have to be engaged in politics. You have to be engaged in the way people organise themselves. Now that's an in, entirely different thing to be being involved in the state. So there should be, no, in my view, no separation between um, religion and politics, but there always should be a separation between the church and the state. 
So, you know, we should be outside Parliament yelling and screaming and waving placards and saying, you know, this is, this is wrong, you can't do this. Um, that's our place. That's where we should be. Uh, we shouldn't be inside at the table. Uh, that, that, that's, that leads to the corruption of both government and of the church. Uh, Desmond Tutu, uh, one of my, another one of my great heroes, in, in the fight against apartheid, uh, he encouraged all his priests, when he was a bishop, um, he encouraged all his priests to be members of the ANC, the African National Congress, because they were the, that was the political movement that was fighting against apartheid. Mm. Um, the minute the ANC became the government, uh, Tutu wrote to all his priests and said, you've got to resign. Because he said, yeah, it, church should always be involved in politics, but never in government. And I think that's a really important distinction. Yeah, um, very good point. Um, because it's our core business. Our core business is to, um, you know, to be part of the movement that evolves a more just society. Mm. Um, so churches and unions ought to be um, in partnership with each other. Coming at it from maybe two different directions, but heading to the same place. We want a just society. I see an alignment of issues, and I mean that's that's one of the things that um, that I like to try to, to tease out with these podcast episodes. But Rod, um, to ask you a potentially loaded question, do you get the clergy careerists? I know in the unions you get the, the union careerists. Do you get that yep, tension? I was one. I, I was one. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah, I was a career priest. Uh, you know, uh, I was being groomed <laughs> for uh, for great things. Oh, and, okay. Um, you were connected with a kingmaker, and then it's like, okay, absolutely. Um, you know, um, I um, I was the youngest uh, archdeacon. We um, archdeacons are, uh, I guess, if you if I worked for Woolworths, I'd be a regional manager. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the youngest regional manager ever appointed in the diocese. I was on my way up. All right. It makes sense to me now that you've put it in a corporate context there, right? Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and, and there are, you know, there are, um, you know, in any organisation you get that personality type. Yeah. Yeah, what led to, um, to your break from that? What, what happened there? I made a decision at one stage to a... An employee who I knew quite well of the, of the church, a layman, he, he, he looked after a lot of the church's money and he knocked, a, he knocked off about 200 grand of it. Oh, okay. And uh, I said to him, look, you know, you, you're going to have to cop what's coming to you from the judge and, and you've got to pay the money back. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to walk with you through this uh, and we'll get there. We'll get there. In the end, you know, we're going to get there. We'll be fine. Mm. And the uh, the hierarchy of the church said, you know, you you can't have anything to do with this guy. And I said, hang about that. Isn't that what I was ordained to do? Mm. <laughs> you know, to, to to reconcile sinners. <laughs> and uh, and I said, no. Um, and that's that's my job. That's why I'm a priest is to help this person. Um, you know, put his life back together. Mm. And uh, and so then I was sacked as the regional manager. And it, it kind of pushed me to the edge of the organisation where I've stayed, uh, although now I'm I'm an archdeacon again under a new regime and, and I, 
you know, I, I get a seat at the adults' table kind of thing. <laughs> do you do you feel that with this second bite of the cherry, you, you might have a bit more of a, um, an autonomy with how? You oh, do your absolutely. Service? I mean, because because I don't see it as a careerist thing, I'm happy to contribute from my perspective of being on the edge, and mm. I think that's an important perspective to bring to the table. But the the minute I, I you know, if I not that I have been because I've been. Uh, the last couple of bishops that I've had have been extraordinarily uh, supportive and, in fact, quite passionate about social justice themselves. And so they've really wanted that perspective from the edge. And so I think that's turned around a little bit. But, yeah, so you get, you, you do get those career priests and I was one of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, th- I think the lesson I'm getting from that is, is it's not necessarily also the the journey of one. It's also how how you attract allies and find them, and and that's how you're able to come up with some positive things as well. Nothing is ever a journey of one. Yeah. <laughs> we, you know, we live in an ecosystem, and uh, you know, every. Um, Every decision that is made affects a whole web of people. Yeah, no, it's interesting how you frame it as a as an ecological t- thing there, Rod, because I just wanted to get back to that thesis you were making there about the church's role within media. Now, we touched upon the billboards and how their meshes in with our internet culture now and our, our Twitters and um, how uh, if we come up with something short and punchy, the... And also meaningful, uh, if we can get that combination right, that uh, we get the word out. This year has really introduced a challenge to really embrace um, online forums that often need to replace some of the face-to-face activities that um, we've done, often outright flipping the table on its head, as it were. Now, just talking with you today, Father Rod, it's uh, given the hot take part of my head, a bit of a goings over. And I'm just wondering how much do you think the church has, has really contributed to what we're doing here with, with a Zoom? Because laws were in place where congregations couldn't necessarily happen in a face-to-face manner, but services must continue because religion doesn't stop despite the pandemic. The alternative was to have services via Zoom. How much do you think that arrangement has acted as, as an inspiration for the way that people have, in other sections of the community and society have suddenly decided to adjust in terms of the way that they communicate. It's been an interesting, really interesting process. I mean, essentially it is very, if you come from a church tradition like the Anglican church that I come from, an Anglican worship at its best engages all five senses you know so it, it's touch and sight and sound and smell and taste and you know uh, very hard you can't do that online if if you come from a religious tradition that is simply cerebral it's about you know getting information in then that kind of works better online um, so that's been a real challenge for us having said that um I think there have been really uh, beneficial things because um, our parish has grown substantially during this year because people have been able to access us online and we've had 
online study groups and conversation groups and that people who wouldn't normally come to a study group have come on Zoom. Uh, and so there's, well, yeah, there, there's been some good things. Sorry, um, Rod, would you say that the growth is entirely due to practicality or perhaps some of the stuff that, that is discussed within those forums? Oh, I, I think it's multifaceted. I think it's it partially, well, uh, I think it's, it's due in part to the, the context in which we find ourselves this year where people are asking questions about life, death and the universe. Okay. What does, what's, what's all this mean? You know, all of a sudden all, all the things that were filling up my life have just disappeared. Here I am sitting at home, you know, what's all this mean? So I think that's part of um, it's part of accessibility that, you know, people have been able to join things online and, and just and I think and I talked to counsellors about this too. What you know, they were very counsellors and therapists were very sceptical about how they could work on Zoom rather than face to face. What they discovered and what I've discovered myself is doing counselling online is that often people don't think anyone's listening. <laughs> they're, in a, they're in a room by themselves and they forget that there's another person at the other end of the screen. And they'll say things because they'll feel kind of safe and they'll say things that they, from the depth of their soul, that they wouldn't normally say. And I've had people say, tell me something in a counselling session um, on Zoom and then go, oh, oh, oh I, I'd never told anyone that before because they forgot that someone was listening. So I think there's lots of facets to this. And so there's there's a downside, I think, because, you know, for us, Christian worship is a five, you know, five senses thing and six or six senses, really. Mm. Um, and you can't do that online. But having said that, the upside was that there was a lot more accessibility going on. And, um, you know, so there's good and bad. There's balance. Sounds like there's also an effort to kind of facilitate or try your best to facilitate that which is missing amongst um, the empirical senses and also the the fundamental questions people are going to ask when there's stuff that's missing. I know within the community work I'm finding that in these, like in such an uncertain year, you're finding yourself being productive when you're finding a ways however it might be, no matter how innovative it turns out to be or how left field it is, that if you can find a ways of facilitating a person's need to ask those questions and get some sort of resolution, I think that's where where you can do something productive. Hmm. You're finding that as well through through the, the alternative steps that you need to take there, Rod? This year has been an incredibly productive year for us. And, you know, and I, and I don't want to diminish the, the pain and the suffering and the loss of life and the loss of livelihoods that have also gone on this year. I don't want to take anything away from that. Of course. Um, but for us as a, as a church, I think, you know, sometimes in our tradition, we have this tradition of, of stripping away, uh, of, of emptying, of letting go. And so... I think we as a society have had this spiritual experience, what we would call a spiritual experience this year, of stripping away some of the non-essentials uh, and, and finding ourselves, um, you know, a, a little more in that space with, when, when all the noise stops and the, 
and the, you know the stuff that fills fills in our time needlessly often um, and um, the consumerism stops because the shops are shut and we can't do retail therapy and we can't buy stuff we don't really need or want mm. and so there's a whole tradition in in the spiritual tradition in you know in Christianity and Judaism and in Islam and you know all the um, Buddhism all the great traditions say that un until you empty yourself of all that stuff you'll never find yourself and so I think it's been a bit of a year for for even you know for for, for people of faith and and people and atheists as well um asking some of the uh the deeper questions and 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 people will frame that in different languages with different symbols and all sorts of stuff but at the end of the day it's the same question is when we meet ourselves for the first time it can pull us up a bit look um at the end of the year, Father Rod, and I think for me, for this festive season, it's going to feel a little bit different. I think a lot of it for the issues that we've raised throughout this episode. I don't know if necessarily that means the rules have changed, but I think for me, uh, the the little you do had initial upbringings with Catholicism, I might like to talk to them for a little while here. <laughs> with, with this festive season and this unique thing that we're going to probably do over the next week or so, Rod, do you think it's okay to just kind of sit back and think about, and I'll just be blunt, like just kind of ask oneself, what the fuck happened this year? Like to have a chance yeah. to just sit down, just have a bit of a think and, and ask those questions and, and yeah. not feel guilty about asking them. Do you, do no, you think, think, that, do you think that's questions. something to do during this festive season? Absolutely. Uh, and I think that's, but I think that's what we have been doing. Yeah. Um, because it's 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 hard to work out what the fuck just happened, mm. um, and and what does it mean, and do I want to go back to what it was in February 2020? Yeah, some of those things I want to go back to. A whole stack of stuff. I mean, my life was just, and I don't think I realised how crazy my life was. I was never out of an airport or a hotel room, or you know, and running all over the place and when it all stopped i uh i thought wow i that's that was crazy what, what was i doing and um i don't want to go back to that i don't want to do that again and um and i'll do some things but i i'm off i'm off the roundabout now and, uh, and it's been great and i and i think that you know a lot of people i talk to have had that similar experience and the challenge of course will be once the the invitations and the phone calls and, you know, all those sort of things that sort of stroke the ego start coming again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> will I have the, the strength and the wisdom to say, no, I'm not sorry, I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think what, what's confounding you there, Rod's kind of what's going to confound a lot of people next year, like what, what you return to, what you stick with after you've experienced this year, what might continue to change. But and what agency. is of true value? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't want to sound like the Christmas Grinch, but I kind of, part of me kind of hopes the shops get shut down. <laughs> I really do because, you know, people running around buying stuff they don't want and giving to people who don't need it. <laughs> you know, wouldn't it be good to have a Christmas that, that and I, I'm not talking about from a, not even from a you know a, a Christian religious sort of perspective in that sense, although I, I I guess it is. But you know, wouldn't it be 
good to not be able to shop this Christmas and to sit at home and think, well, what's this all? You know, what's this shit all about? What's this kid being born in some, you know, backwater province of a great empire got to do with anything? And, you know, what kind of society did he want to talk about? And, and I, am I interested in that society? That's what I wish we could be doing this Christmas. Well, and it's not about becoming a Christian or anything else, but it's, it's becoming a, I think it's about becoming a human. Hmm. I feel that that's something I probably find myself getting stuck into this festive season, right? Just doing that absurd thing of reflection. And I try to sound as ironic as possible when doing that because every year before that you, you kind of really get caught into the cycle. If there has been one potentially positive thing about the pandemic and the way that this year's unfolded, it's it's produced perhaps a bit of a circuit breaker for times like this. Let's see. Otherwise, Father Rod, I, I really do appreciate your time. I know that this is obviously um, the business end for you <laughs> in terms of doing things, so... And especially after the news of today. Yeah, I really do appreciate you exploring this plan B online setting with me. And perhaps this time next year we can do it again and um, I get my trip to your minor. Yeah. I hope for that. <laughs> it's been a privilege. Happy Christmas and, and thank you for having me. Thank you, Rather Rod. Uh, all the best and stay safe. So long.